Thanks, Waylon and Zoe. That's our youngest ever to give announcements. So uh, that's kind of cool. Hey, I'd like to uh, begin uh, today by kind of recognizing our veterans. And so if uh, there is any of you that have ever served in the military as a veteran, if you could just please stand, we'd like to uh, recognize you uh, right now. Now, we have uh, two guys who are actually in active duty right now, and they're in Kuwait, and both of them uh, listen uh, to this every once in a while, and if their wives are here today, I guarantee that they'll listen today. Uh, but I'd like to, uh, for us also to recognize um, Jim Thomas and Jeff Felton, uh, who are in Kuwait right now, and so they'll hear this later on. But if we could uh, give them a hand, too, that'd be great. Well, if you would, I would invite you right now to pull out uh, your teaching uh, outline. Even if you don't typically do this, this is a week that I would encourage you to do so um, because uh, we're going to have a lot of uh, stuff we're going to learn today, and I want you to be able to take that home with you. So pull out your teaching outline. And this morning, we're going to look at the theme of how do I know and how do I understand the meaning of a text? So when I take the Bible and I start reading it, um, how do I understand uh, the text? And so I want to give you, uh, right here at the beginning, kind of rapid fire, four uh, simple steps on how to study the Bible. And uh, this is step number one. So the first step is observation. Observation. And this is where you simply ask the question, what does it say? What does the text uh, say? And we kind of write out specifically what we uh, think it says. It doesn't have to be any fancy words uh, that you need to say, but just um, exactly what's there. The second thing is interpretation. Interpretation. This is where we ask the question, what does it mean? So we're reading the book, we observe, what does it say? Now we want to know, what does it mean? And so that's interpretation. The next one there is correlation. And this is where we ask the question, what other verses explain it? What are the other verses that explain it? Because the reality is that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Uh, You can get a Bible dictionary, you can look at... Uh, another kind of uh, commentary uh, from biblical scholars. But the best way to kind of understand the Bible is to look at what's around it and what are the other words uh, that explain that process. And so you look at the other verses to kind of help you understand uh, the Bible. That's called correlation. And then finally, the last step is application. How do I apply it to my life? What am I going to do about it now? Um, Because the reality is, folks, the Bible is not just to be read to increase your knowledge. It's to be read so that it changes your life. You see, if the Bible doesn't change your life, then you're probably not, you know, 
reading it in the right way or you're not connecting in the right way with God as you read it. But this isn't just to get us uh, big and fat heads and we know all this scripture, but it's actually to help change our life. So what am I going to do about it? Now the last four weeks we've looked at observing the text and what it means and the uh, focus of it. And today I want us to look at the uh, next two kind of pieces of that studying of the Bible, the interpretation and correlation. Now, if you've been around any church people before, church ladies, you might say, every once in a while they will come up and they will say something like this. Tell me if you've ever heard this. God doesn't expect us to be successful. He just wants us to be faithful. And the reality is, that's not true. It's half true, but not totally true. It is true that God wants us to be faithful, but the Bible also teaches that He wants us to be fruitful, that we need to bear some fruit. I've uh, been thinking about it this week, that faithfulness or bearing fruit is one of the major themes of the New Testament. God says over and over again, He says, I love you, I created you, I want a relationship with you, but I also want something back. I want a return, you might say, on my investment. I want you to bear fruit. As you read God's Word, as you, and it's called the seed sometimes, the Bible is, as you plant a seed, uh, I want you to bear fruit that comes out of that. So it's true that God does want us to be faithful, but he also wants us to be fruitful. Now, kind of the key passage that we're going to look at is in John chapter 15. And uh, we're going to read this, and you can follow along, and I'll give some commentary uh, as we go along. Jesus is talking, and he's talking to his closest followers, and this is what he says. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And that word remain, he uses it two times there, and it means to be connected, that you want to be connected to God. So stay connected to me, and I'll stay connected to you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain or stay connected to the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain connected to me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear, what's the next two words? Much fruit. Circle that, because that's a really key important. He wants us to bear much fruit. God wants you to live a life that has much fruit, a much fruit kind of life. And then he goes on to say, but apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, if you want to do anything meaningful in your life, if you want to do anything significant, you cannot do it apart from me. You can do things in your life, but they just won't have much significant or meaning. Then he goes on to say, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. 
That's amazing to me. Whatever you wish, it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear. What's that say again? Much fruit. There's that phrase again. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this. In other words, all these things that he's been talking about. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He says, if you want to be joyful, stay connected to me. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Folks, just within these 17 verses, there is more spiritual insight than I have time uh, to give, not only just today, but for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, we could teach on this passage for the rest of the year, and we would not get it all. So sit back, because this is going to be a long teaching. No, I'm joking. Well, this morning, I want us to look at this concept of fruit. And I want you to understand how verses and scriptures can be totally misinterpreted. Because there's a verse that we're going to look at that's kind of a problem verse that is misinterpreted many times. And if you don't get the rules of interpretation, the reality is... You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say it, for whatever you want it to say. For instance, uh, the word slave is in the Bible. And for years and years and years, um, people who wanted to keep slaves would actually go ahead and use that and misinterpret exactly what that meant. It's a horrible misinterpretation. And so if you don't have the right interpretation, you can fall into a cult you can fall into some false teaching. So you can have the Bible say anything that you want it to say, but we don't want you to be like that. We want you to be able to interpret it in a way that God wants and that God honors. I mean, I've heard tons and tons of radio and television uh, preachers and pastors who will stand up and they'll begin to uh, start you know, teaching on this passage and they'll get it totally messed up. And so let's look at our problem verse for today, because I want you to get this. It's in verse 6, and Jesus says this, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and they're burned. And many times what I've heard false kind of interpretations do, they'll take this and they'll say something like Here, that, this. Here's what this means. If you don't bear fruit... And they see the fruit as bringing someone to Christ. So the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. And that's not bad there. That's good. That is fruit. A Christian should bring another Christian. You should be impacting your workplace, your home place, your neighborhood with Christ's love. 
But then what they do is they turn on that verse and then they say, and this verse means that the fruit is one Christian, um, you know, getting another Christian. And if you don't bring people to Christ, God is going to throw you into hell. You're going to lose your salvation and you are going to go to a fiery pit of hell. And then they bang on stuff a whole lot, you know. To make you know that hell is going to be a place where people bang on things a lot, you know what I mean? So you don't want to go. Now, is that what this verse says? No, absolutely not. That is a gross misinterpretation of this scripture. And then what they do is they misinterpret that, then they misinterpret all of chapter 15. So what I want us to do today is I don't want you to fall into any of those traps so that when you listen, you can actually decide on yourself. Is he following or is she following rules of interpretation or not? And here they are. The first one is this. You must consider the historical context. You must consider the historical context. Long before you ever ask the question, what does this mean to me, what you need to find out is what is around this particular passage. Who is the person talking to? Um, Why is God talking to them? Who is he talking to and, and why is he saying certain things? And that's what you need to find out. Now, in this particular passage, in uh, John 15, it's found like right in the middle of five chapters that uh, speak one conversation. So it's not like you see, sometimes I think what happens when people start getting engaged in the Bible, they like read one chapter and then they go, oh, and then the next day was chapter 14. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, but not always. So chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of those are one conversation that comes from Jesus and happens in one particular night. It's said right before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and beaten, and then the next day he's crucified on a cross. And this is a conversation that he has with those closest to him. Jesus does not have this conversation with hundreds of people. He has it with just the people who are closest to him, his closest friends, the guys that he had spent the last three and a half years with. And he wants to be close to them. I mean, just think about it. Some of you have had loss in your life. And maybe a person has died and they were on their deathbed and you were there. And you felt so close and connected because they're like sharing the most important things they want you to know before they die. And in John 13, 14, 15, 16, this one conversation, Jesus is trying to give the most important thing he wants these guys to know. And why is that? Why does he do that? Because he knows that these guys are going to go through some difficult times. They're going to grieve his loss. They're going to be hurting. And so they want him to be prepared. He wants them to be prepared. So, within these four chapters, at the beginning, Jesus takes them to a room. It's called the upper room, or it's called the place where the Last Supper took place. It's where communion uh, took place, that we uh, call now. And he has this intimate relationship, an intimate time with these people, because this is the last time he's going to talk to them before he dies. 
And starting in chapter 13, this is what it says. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So they have this feast. They have a meal together. They're all enjoying this time. They don't know that it's coming, even though he's talked to them about it before, because they want to avoid it. Just like when someone is dying, many times our first response is we want to avoid that. It really isn't happening. And so they are just talking, they're having fun, they're cutting jokes, they're saying all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden, Jesus excuses himself from the table, and he goes and he finds a basin of water, and he, or a basin, and he fills it with water. He comes back into the room, and then he changes his clothes, he gets out a towel, he gets on his knees, and he begins to wash the feet of every single disciple, even Judas, the one who in just a couple of hours is going to give him up to the Roman soldiers. But he sits down and he washes the feet of every single person. It's an incredible scene. I mean, these guys are watching their teacher, the one who is God's son, getting on his knees and washing their feet. And here's just an aside I was thinking about this week. You can't serve people unless you know who you are. You can't serve people unless you know who you are. Because the reality is the number one thing that keeps you from serving people is you're insecure. We get insecure because we don't want to be perceived as a servant. We don't want to have to sacrifice something. We don't want to have to give something up. And so we choose not to serve. And it really comes down to the fact that we don't know who we are and whose we are. Well, Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was God's son. He knew where he was going. He didn't have any issue whatsoever. He was beyond what it meant to be a servant. So he could get on his knees and he could wash feet. And these feet that he were washing, folks, were not like our feet. Um, You know, we all take baths. Well, most of you take baths every day. Or showers. No one takes a bath anymore, do they, actually? We should, like, get rid of baths. Except, like, this may... Nah, better not say it. Well, I'll say it. Women love to take baths. Now, is that true? My wife, well, we got this bathtub, and she just, like, she, when the door's closed, and she, don't touch her. Now, I think, like, that's a romantic move for me. You know what I mean? Like a jungle amble. You know, kind of going to the, going to the uh, river or something, you know? And she's like, I want to be all by myself. Okay, just ignore all that. But <laughs> um, Sorry. I love you guys. Thanks for loving me. All right. So anyway, so he's washing the feet. I just felt like you needed a break. You don't realize that that was, I was trying to engage you back. Or I was digging, as some might say. So he washes all of their feet, but these feet are nasty. Because in that culture, they, um, they had roads and everything went out in the road. So the animals who were on the road, if they peed or pooped, it was on the road. Anything that was in the house um, that you were cleaning dishes, you just threw it out. 
If you had a cat or a dog or whatever, you threw everything out, and all this is on the road. And most people couldn't afford sandals, so most people were barefoot. So when you came to someone's house, uh, no matter, it was like, you know, you wanted to have the lowliest person to do this because no one wants to wash that nastiness off of people's feet. And so you would have the lowest person in the house, the servant, do all of that. And all of a sudden now, Jesus does the unexpected. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, and he's down on his knees and he's washing all this nastiness off of the feet of his disciples. And they can't believe it's going on. They're like... Oh, no. In fact, Peter even was like, no, 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 don't do that, Jesus. You know, they try to stop it. But he, he goes ahead. He, he does this all. And they can't believe it. And then the end of the text, it says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is who I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And that's the first lesson. The first lesson that he gives to his closest followers are, you need to be a servant of all people. All people. Because he knows that they're going to be devastated pretty soon. They're going to be grieving his loss. They're going to be in shock. They're going to be confused. So he he goes, hey guys, come here, come here. I need to tell each of you what you need to do. You need to love each other a lot, and you need to serve each other, because there's going to be times in which you only have one another. And he spends the rest of chapter 13 doing that. Then he goes into 14, and uh, Jesus goes ahead and he makes a whole bunch of promises. And he starts the first 11 verses, and he gives these promises. The first promise that he gives is that he says, hey guys, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about anything. Because what's going to happen is I am going to die, but I'm going to come back to life. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to ascend into heaven, and I am going to prepare a place for you. All of you are going to be able to join me as I prepare this place. So don't worry about anything. And then he goes a little bit longer, and then he has another promise. He says, hey, and you know what? You can talk to me anytime. You do not have to worry, and you can pray. Anytime that you want, you can talk to me. 24 hours a day, you just pray. Pray about anything, and I will hear you. I will listen. Ask, and I will meet your need. That's the second thing. Then he goes on, and he says, well, don't worry, and you can pray anytime. And just in case you ever feel discouraged or you don't feel much comfort, I'm going to send my spirit. The Holy Spirit will be here present for you. And that spirit's going to be great. It's going to guide you. It's going to direct you. It's going to help you in any way that you can imagine. And uh, it will uh, be with you, always. I will be inside of you as my spirit comes and is present. And then finally he says, so you don't have to worry. You can pray. You can talk to me anytime. Uh, the Holy Spirit is going to be present to guide you, to comfort you, to counsel you. And then finally he says, and I'm going to give you a peace that this world doesn't know and this world can't take away. You're going to have that peace. And at the end of chapter 14, he says this, he says these verse, or he, he says this in verse 31. 
come now, let's leave this place. Now, where were they? They're in the upper room, right? That's where they're at. They're in this room, and he says, hey, come on now, let's leave this place. And where are they going? Well, they leave from Jerusalem, which is on a hill, and they go down into a valley, and then they come up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the present-day picture of it. The thing is, though, is they're walking down into this valley. All of a sudden, there's this vineyard that's all around. And Jesus is like, oh, i got an object lesson now. Maybe they didn't get all of that, so I want to teach them a little bit more. And so uh, Jesus comes, and they're walking through the vineyards, and Jesus sees them, and he decides to give kind of an object lesson. And in chapter 15, then, what we just read earlier, he says, I am the vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me, it bears fruit. But if you're disconnected from me, you're not going to bear any fruit. So he says, hey, guys, hey, hey, as long as you stay connected to me, you see all these vineyard trees that are here? You will produce fruit, and you'll be connected. If you connect with me, you're going to bear fruit. If you disconnect from me, you know, you're not. And then at the end of the object lesson, he says this in verse 11. He says, I've told you this. Now, what's he told him? Well, he just told him everything that was in chapter 13. What did he say in chapter 13? He said, you're going to have to serve people. You're going to have to love people because that's going to be really, really important because you're going to come on some hard times. And he says, uh, also, uh, beyond that, I am going to let you not worry about anything. You don't have to worry about anything. You can pray. My Holy Spirit's going to be present. And uh, you're going to have a peace in all this. So that's what he says when he says, I've told you this. What did he tell him? All that we just talked about. And why? So that my, what's it say? What? It was like, now usually you're like, you know, a little bit more engaged because you've slept a little bit longer. And this morning when I said joy, they're like, joy. Joy. Like joy. You should be joyful. You're alive today. Joy. So he said, so that my joy may be in you and your what? Joy may be complete. And that's called the context of the scripture. Who's he talking to and what's he saying? He is giving them encouragement. Now, in knowing this now, so you, you know the context, you know the first couple chapters before it. Now, in knowing all of this, what makes you think that this is what he meant? You guys, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to... Be cut off from me. You're going to lose your salvation, and you're going to burn in hell. Now I've said this, you may have full joy. Doesn't make sense, does it? But you see, if you don't know 13 and 14, and you didn't like uncover that, do you see how anyone could make that scripture say whatever they wanted it to say? They don't have the context. There's only one interpretation within this, and you can't find that unless you look around it. He's not talking about hell here, folks. I said that your joy may be full. So, how many of you think this is a joyful statement? By the way, I'm leaving, and if you don't stay connected to me, you're going to hell, and you're going to burn, and you're going to be disconnected, and you're going to lose your salvation. Does that sound joyful? No. 
The context has nothing to do with hell. It has all to do with an interpretation that's different that we're going to figure out here in just a second. So the second principle that you want to look at with interpretation is this. You must define the key words. So you've got to know the context around the scripture. You can't just pull it out. And then secondly, you've got to know the context. You must define the key words. So the historical context and defining the key words. If you're going to get the right meaning of the Bible, you've got to make sure that you understand what it means. Not what you think it means, but what it actually means. I mean, just because it says something, a word is used in a particular scripture, it doesn't always necessarily mean that that word is used the same way in every other verse that that word is ever used. For example, let me ask you this. Have you ever had an argument with your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parents and you both used the exact word but you had totally different meanings? So if that's ever happened before, raise your hand. And those of you that didn't raise your hand, what do we call them? Liars. You're a liar. Because if you're a human being, folks, you have used a word before and both of you used the same word, but you came up with totally different meanings. My wife Jennifer and I have this argument every single day. Because I'll use a word, and then she uses the same word, and we come up with totally different destinations. I mean, what we thought it was going to be is totally different, even though it's the same word. Because words have different meanings. Same word, but different meanings. For instance, what's this word right here? Now, grass can mean a couple different things. Grass can be something that you're mowing, or grass can be something that you're smoking. Right? Same word. Exact same word. Okay, here's another one. Band. Now, band can be the worship band. Band can be, you know, the uh, high school band. Um, that's great. But band also can be other things. It could mean a thin strip for binding or a ring of elastic or to gather together. Different meanings, the exact same word. How about this one? Bail. You might be talking about getting rid of some water or you might be talking about getting a guy out of jail. You don't know unless you understand the context. In fact, you can have the same word in the same sentence used a couple different times and it can have totally different meanings. Here's my sentence. That song is the bomb, but when she sang it, she bombed. <laughs> same word, two different meanings. Now, some of you right now are like, I don't know why he's talking about bomb. <laughs> if you don't get what the, the word really means... I guess that could be another one, bomb. You know, they bombed uh, Iraq or something. But if you don't know that word, like in the cool sense, come up, and I am the king of cool. So I will help you, okay? I can't wait till my girls become teenagers. They'll be like, you're an idiot. I mean, I mean, they say that already, but. So when you look at this verse and you see a word, you can't automatically assume that that's what that word means, like fire. 
Now, fire in other places in the Bible, it does mean hell. But every time you see fire, it doesn't mean hell. You're going to hell. That's what fire means, hell. No, it doesn't mean that. In this particular passage, in John 15, uh, there is two words that are used nine times each. The first one is the word love. Love is mentioned nine times just within these 17 verses. The second word that's also mentioned nine times is the word fruit. So we better understand about love and fruit if we're going to understand this particular passage. Now, most of us would say, oh, we understand love because that's what Jesus finally did on the cross. He's talking about loving each other. I think I got that one. But what about fruit? What does it mean to be fruitful? If God expects me to bear fruit in my life, I'd better know what it means. What is fruit? What's he talking about? See, because the word fruit in the New Testament is used 45 times. 45 times it's used. And it has 10 different meanings. So every time it uses the word fruit, even though it's the same word, it has different meanings. Now I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. But let me just show you a few scriptures. Matthew 3.8, the word fruit is used for the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. What's that mean? That means turning away from sin. That we have to do that in order to have fruit. In uh, Matthew 26, 29, it says, if it talks about the fruit of the vine. Now, what's that? Some of you know because you drank it last night. Um, wine, right? You don't have to, like, get all wigged out. It's all right to have a little glass of wine, Paul said to. So, you know, that's it. Now, Romans 7, 5 says this. Fruit for death. He's talking about a sinful lifestyle. Same word. Romans 15, 18. We receive this fruit. There it's talking about an offering of money. They were collecting an offering of money, and he says, this is the fruit that you've given to us. I bet you've heard that before. Hebrews 13, 15, it talks about praise to God, the fruit of our lips. That when we praise God, it's as if there's fruit that flows from our lips in praise to God. So what's this fruit all about? If God says, I'm to bear fruit, Jesus is saying this is a very important thing to know. Again, go back to it. This is the last people that he talks to. This is the last thing he says. When people get to that point in their life, folks, they are going to tell you the most important thing that they want you to know. So what is the meaning of fruit in this context? That brings us to our third principle of interpretation. I must interpret unclear verses with clear verses. I must interpret unclear verses with clear clear verses. John 15, we find three characteristics of this fruit that he's talking about. So what are the characteristics of the fruit? Well, in verse 4, Jesus said this, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Again, remember, that word remain means to stay connected, to abide, to stay close to, to continue with. A branch that's disconnected from a tree, it can't grow uh, any fruit, can it? No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So if I were doing a Bible study and I was using my uh, little, you know, four steps and I got to the interpretation piece, I would write down this. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. 
Bearing fruit is produced by what? When I remain with Christ. What's that mean? When I stay connected to him, when I stay close to him, when I stay engaged with him. Now, that's not an exaggeration, is it? Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not trying to read into this. It's very clear. And he says it three different times. He says, if you stay connected to me, you're going to bear fruit. If you stay disconnected from me, what? No fruit. Then verse 8, he says this. This is to my Father's glory that you bear... What's that word again? Two words. Much fruit. Much fruit, again. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the second thing that I would write down is this. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. When I bear fruit, I remain closer to Christ. It produces that. And secondly, I bring glory to God. How do I know that? Because it's in the verse, right? It's very, very clear. It's true. This isn't a misinterpretation. You can leave today and say, nope, bunch, that's it. It's right there. It says that when I bear fruit, I bring glory to God. That's what I'd write down. Then in verse 11, we get this third characteristic. Jesus said, I have told you this so that my what? Joy may be in you and that your what? Joy may be complete. Jesus tells us that his whole motive of talking about bearing fruit is what? Joy. The reason you want to bear fruit is because it will bring joy to your life. So I would write down, bearing fruit will give me complete joy. How do I get joy? By bearing fruit. So bearing fruit, it produces, what, what does it produce? It, it, it's produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God and it gives me complete joy. I don't know about you, but I want some of that fruit. Like if I had those three things in my life, all the time, every morning that I wake up, I want to know what that fruit is. So that leads us to the fourth principle. Look for the obvious meaning. Look for the obvious meaning. Now the problem is, is that many times uh, people do exactly the opposite uh, of this. And you see it in churches all the time. That's why every once in a while, people will say, well, you know the jar, you just aren't very deep. And I used to get offended. I don't get offended anymore. Because this church will never change as long as I'm here that it will be an application-based teaching church. In other words, folks, I don't want you to get deep and just go home, oh boy, it was deep today. Woo! Man, it was deep. I mean, that Hebrew and that Greek, he pulled that out. Woo! It's like I had something crawled up in me. It was deep. Did you think it was deep? Yeah. Woo! Deep. Then you go through the rest of the week and you don't do anything. I don't care how deep you are. If you're not doing what the Bible says, it doesn't matter. Today's teaching it's deep, but it's not deep because we just want you to get deep. We want you to actually do what it says to do. And what is that? Bear fruit. So don't ever listen to people when they're like, oh, I've got the secret for this passage. The Holy Spirit came to me and it gave it to me right here. And I'm telling you, it's secret. It is hidden from you. But only I have the wisdom. This book is thousands of years old. There is nothing that we've ever said that is new. 
That doesn't mean it's not right. It's true. It doesn't mean we don't have revelation that comes. But someone has said what Chris Bunch has said today somewhere, some other time. Thousands of people probably have. But it's true. So the Bible's not full of secrets. You know, like on Discovery Channel and uh, the History Channel, every time they'll be like, the secrets of the Bible. And they have this mood music that comes in. You're like, oh God, it is secret. I don't think I'm going to ever be able to understand it. Well, forget that. I'm just going to let it go. No. This book is not a secret book. There's not some special code. You can today open it up and read it, and the whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal God. Not to conceal God. It's to reveal God. Not to conceal who He is. So no secret formulas in this book. So anytime you hear somebody and they're like, oh, I've, I've, got, I've got the market on this scripture. Woo! And our church, mm-mm. I mean, when it comes to Galatians 2, we are a Galatians 2. Woo! We know how to live it out. Okay? Also, don't try to find a detail in every single thing. The Bible is filled with stories. But sometimes... Uh, the things that happen in the story have no spiritual meaning whatsoever. We talked about a donkey last week. Now, does that mean that all of you should go out and buy donkeys? Oh, man, if I don't want to see that angel, I better give me a donkey. Have some good eyesight. It's just a donkey. You don't need to go buy a donkey. Just a donkey. Or, uh, you know, other things. That's why Jesus taught in parables. He would tell these stories, and he just had one point. Not five, not ten, not twenty. He wasn't about, oh, let's get deep. No, he said, hey, guys, you know what? There was a coin that was lost. There was a son that was lost. There was a sheep that was lost. And what's the whole thing about? Lostness. And he says, you come to me, you'll be found. That's it. Luke 15. You just got it. And yet sometimes you go lay on, oh, what's the coin mean? What's this mean? For instance, if the Bible has a story and it says, and the guy was wearing a red scarf, it doesn't necessarily mean, ooh, the blood. You know what? He must be the one who had the blood because red and other things is blood. And so he must be the guilty one. No, he just woke up one day and he's like, I like red scarf, I'm going to wear it. Or let's think about if the Bible told a story about a guy with... uh, who rode a bicycle, a tricycle, had three wheels. Ooh, I know what that means. That is the Trinity. I can tell right now that is a man of God because he was riding a bike with three wheels on it. No, he just didn't know how to ride a bike with two wheels on it, you know? But you see what happens sometimes? We try to get so much of the detail that we miss what is so obvious right there because sometimes the story, the words in it have no spiritual meaning. So don't try to find every detail. For instance, in this passage of Scripture, the one in uh, verse 6 that talks about fire, you know what that word in the Greek is? It's the word per, P-U-R. You know what it means? Fire! That's what it means. It just means fire. It doesn't mean anything else. It means fire. So looking back at verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and withers, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they're burned. 
Remember, folks, he's walking through a vineyard, and he's like, hey, guys, you know, like these branches that are down here on the ground, they're not connected to the tree, they're not connected to the branch. What are they good for? Firewood. Because they didn't have microwaves back in those days. You know, you had to cook over a fire. So you, you, don't, you don't cut down a tree to build a fire. You take any of the stuff that doesn't stay connected to the tree, and that's what you use it for. And the people, guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah. Disciples are like, oh, we get that. And Jesus says, the only thing a fruit tree is good for that is not producing tr- fruit is for firewood. And in those days... That's the only way that they could cook. Friends, Jesus is not talking about going to hell in the scripture verse. But without the context, do you see how somebody could easily guide you into a very different path? That's not true. Now let's go back to uh, the text and let me give you these three final things. In verse 7, Jesus says this. If you remain in me, there's that word again. And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. What's he talking about there? Prayer. It's not, you know, there's no secret meaning. It's prayer. So I might write down something like this. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. And that's not a stretch, is it, folks? Because that's what the text says. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask whatever and it will be given to you. So remaining in Christ, staying connected to him, produces answered prayers. Have you ever thought about this before? The fact that prayer can do anything that God can do. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And if that's the truth, folks, why are you asking tiny little prayers? Most of you pray for things that you don't need God to show up for it to get answered. You can answer it yourself. You just work a little bit harder. So why do you ask little, tiny, measly prayers? Prayer can do anything that God can do. It says, whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Now, some of you at this point are like, whoa, 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 bunch. I prayed before, and things didn't turn out what I prayed for. You're right. Because you prayed like this. You said, God, give me this because I think it's good for me. Give me, 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 give me. Give me because I think it's good for me. Rather than praying, God, I want you to give me what you think is good for me. And whatever you say and whatever you want to give me, I will take it. I know you've had this experience. It's happened to me. I prayed for something and it didn't get answered and I was so discouraged in the moment. But then a year later... I look back and I was like, oh God, thank you so much that that thing did not get answered. You ever had that experience? You see, folks, God will always give you something better than you ask for. He'll never give you anything worse. 
It's a really important thing that I just said. He will never give you anything worse than what you ask for. Now, it may not be on your timetable. It may not be the answer that you want, but he will always give you something better because God loves you. He loves you so much that he wants to answer the prayers that will make your life best. A second thing. It's in chapter 14, verse 13. Jesus says this, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for what, for anything in my name and I will do it. And another thing we learn is this, that answered prayer brings glory to God. Answered prayer brings glory to God. He says when you ask for something in my name and I give it to you, it gives glory to God. And it shows how much God loves you. Now let me ask you this. What do you need to be asking God for in your life right now? What do you need to ask God to do in your life right now? Why aren't you asking it? It brings glory to God when Jesus answers those. I know some of you right now, you're going through a really shaky time. And so let me give you some advice. When your knees are shaken, kneel. Kneel all the way down to the ground. Just kneel. And when the storms of life come and you start getting shaky, don't fight the storm. Just kneel. Because when you kneel, folks, you can't fall. You can't stumble. It's only when you're trying to stand upright and do everything on your own and you don't ask Him for anything. That's when you fall. That's when you stumble. So kneel. Jesus said, ask anything in my name because it brings glory to God. One more verse. Chapter 16, verse 24. Again, same group of guys, same day. He's telling them. Jesus says this, Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Again, there's that phrase again. Anything. In my name. So he says, ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. You ever hear that phrase before? Joy complete? Oh, he said it earlier, right? Wait, he actually said it a couple different times. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Did you know that 20 times in the New Testament alone, it's not like a question, but it's a command that God says, Ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Folks, God never shuts his storehouse until you shut your mouth. Let me say that again. God never shuts his storehouse until you shut your mouth. When you stop asking, that's the only way God will not give provision for your life. And the problem is, one day, you're going to get to heaven, and you're going to be walking around, and you're going to be like, I could have had those things? Yeah, but you never ask. And you'll be in heaven, and you'll be going around, and you'll believe, I could have received those blessings in my life? Yeah, but you never ask. The Bible is clear. You have not because you ask not. James uh, chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you ask not. 
Folks, when you don't pray, you don't cheat God. You cheat yourself. When you don't pray, you don't hurt God. You hurt yourself. And God says, that's why I want you to ask, because that's the way you stay connected to me, and joy comes to your life. So bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Bearing fruit gives me complete joy. Answered prayer comes from remaining in Christ. Answered prayer brings glory to God. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Do you see a connection here? Well, just in case you missed it, Jesus finally says, okay, just in case they don't get it, here finally in verse 16, I'll say this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. After he talks about fruit, folks, then what does he talk about? Prayer. So after looking at the context and everything that's in it, what's the take-home message of chapter 15? I bear fruit by asking in prayer. The way that you bear fruit, folks, is when you ask in prayer. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about hell. He's not talking about losing your salvation. But fruit comes from prayer. That's why we want to elevate prayer in the jar. Because that's when the fruit comes. But you know what the problem is? Many of us treat prayer like a spare tire. Spare tire, just on the back of your car or in the trunk. When do you use a spare tire? When you got it flat. Like you don't, you're not like, oh, I wonder how the spare tire is doing today. <laughs> you just wait until it gets flat and things don't work out so great. And then all of a sudden, then you turn to the spare tire. When your life goes flat and you're in trouble, that's often when people turn to prayer. In fact, you hear it all the time, don't you? People go, all we can do is pray. And then people come around, they're like, oh my gosh, it's that bad? That's it? That's all we can do is pray? It's a bad one. That's all they can do is pray. Like, it's really bad if you have to pray. Prayer is like the last result. It's the uh, resort. It's the, you know, spare tire. Folks, prayer should not be the last resort. It should be your first choice. God does not want prayer to be your spare tire. He doesn't. God doesn't want prayer to be your spare tire. He wants it to be your steering wheel where the fruit comes, where you can guide yourself, because as you pray, God gives you direction and focus. It's like this. Much prayer, much fruit. Little prayer, little fruit. No prayer, no fruit. And you choose. I was trying to think about it, how we would close today. And I kind of thought, 
some of you just need to ask that question to God. Where do you want me to bear fruit? And for some of you, you need to bear fruit. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's in your health. Maybe it's in your finances. But you need some fruit. And Jesus says, well, just ask, pray, and I'll answer. And so I thought the way that we would close uh, today is if you stand up for a second. And prayer team, if you guys will come down. If you'd like prayer for anything after the celebration, come on up. But I just want to invite you um, to just ask God. Where do you want me to bear some fruit? And then he'll answer. And then go do it. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come right now and speak to people's minds where you want them to bear fruit. created us to bear fruit. God, thank you that you created this whole idea of prayer that we can talk to you anytime we want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, anytime we want for the rest of our life. And you listen. Thank you that you want us to be filled with joy, abundant joy, and that I can live in that joy every day. God, I I just ask for myself, but I'm sure for other people here too, forgive me, God, that I don't pray as much. Forgive me for treating prayer sometimes like a spare tire that I only use when it goes flat, rather than seeing it as the steering wheel that, that guides my life. God, I pray right now through the power of the Holy Spirit that for each person who's here today, that the jar would become a place of fruit bearers. Men and women who bear fruit in their career, who bear fruit in their neighborhoods, who bear fruit in their schools, who bear fruit in every single place they go because they are people who are praying and asking for your help. Lord, help us to pray more and to see more fruit in our lives. And if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, you don't have to say this out loud, but just to yourself, I invite you to uh, just kind of repeat these words after me in your mind, but just to yourself. Jesus Christ, come into my life right now and change me. I want to be a fruitful person. 
I want it to produce results. I want my life to count. Teach me to pray, to trust you, and to love you. Thanks for loving me and dying on a cross. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we got a free gift for you at Guest Connections. So check that out and have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, guys. There is free.